One of the most exciting times in life, I think, is when you pass your driving test and uh, maybe get your first car. Um, this happened to me when I very first came to Rotherham as an 18-year-old. It's like oh, 70 years ago. I came to work as a trainee at Maltby Pit. It's not there now, just up the road. I'd not long passed my test and needed a car to get about, shift work, and, and my parents very kindly helped me out. And I need to be careful here because my mum sometimes watches the live stream. If you are, hello mum. Um, I, I, I was very grateful, <laughs> but my mum knows this. Here, here, here is the picture. Uh, of of the car that I had. Uh, some of you are older will recognise this. It was a Morris Eital. And I, in trying to find this picture, this is not my car, but it was a blue one just like this. And when I was looking for the picture, I discovered that there are only 29 of these left that have a valid MOT. And I was thinking, I should have kept it. <laughs> Rare car. The problem with that, as my mum knows, is that this car became a bit of a family joke. It still is, because it was an absolute disaster. From day one to the end of that year, here in Rotherham, as an 18-year-old, this car was a liability. Um, very early on, I was driving up the motorway in the fast lane, and the bonnet came off its kind of brackets and peeled up across the windscreen <laughs> in the fast lane. There was, a, there was another occasion when the engine was on fire. Um, it, scary liability. I think we spent more in repairs in that year than the car cost at the start of the year. Um, yeah, this sad excuse of a car was pretending to be a car. It looked like a car, but it really wasn't. And at the end of that year, we scrapped it. Um, the, I, I was go the, re the thing that reminded me of this was I was going through some old stuff recently. Oh, I meant to bring it. And I found a letter. My dad was a bit of a joker. And it, my dad sent me a letter at the end of this year. And it, and it, it, was, a, it was a one page. Dear Ian, I'm just writing to inform you that the funeral of KKU450W took place on Friday. The MOT was terminal, and so I, I meant to bring it to show you. I just, I randomly found it recently. Why, why do I tell you all this? Well, we're, we're continuing, as you know, our studies in Matthew's Gospel. And in this afternoon, this, this afternoon, the passage uh, that Julian read to us here, there's no car, obviously, but there is essentially a temple and a tree. And here's the thing, like my first car, the temple looked like a temple, but it didn't behave like one. And the same is true of the tree. It looked like a tree. It promised what a tree promises, but it did not fulfill its potential. And actually, both the temple and the tree, like my car, ended up getting what? Scrapped.
We'll say, keep your finger on the page. We always say that. Um, keep your finger on the page so you can follow. We'll see an important difference between these two accounts, though. The first, with the temple, which is verses 12 to 17, is a very public act in which Jesus makes a powerful statement that angered the religious leaders so much that by the end of this very week, they, they had him killed outside the city on a Roman cross. But the second part from verses 18 to 22 is a much more private incident in which Jesus acts out a kind of parable to explain to his disciples in private what was going on with the temple. But Jesus, as we'll see, then uses that story to inspire his disciples, I think, in a particular way. So I hope when we land, you'll feel inspired because I think that's what Matthew is aiming at. So let's look at the temple and then the tree in turn and try and work out what's going on. First of all, the temple, a public act that angers the establishment. Now, last week we saw how the cheering crowds carried Jesus on a wave of joy to the city. But who could have expected what happened next? If you were playing question of sport, who could have expected what happened next? They thought he was coming as their mighty king to liberate them from the Roman Empire. But Matthew tells us here that instead of attacking the Roman enemy, Jesus marches straight into their own temple and smashes that up instead. Who would have expected that? Now, this temple isn't there now, but we do know what it looked like. And uh, this, this, is, this looks like a photo. It's actually a model. It's, it's really realistic. And I just wanted to show you this because this, this will be important over the next couple of months. Maybe we should show this picture every, every Sunday. The bit in the middle is the actual temple. It was designed on the, on, on the back of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. If you know something about that, the Holy of Holies is the tall bit in the middle. But this outer bit around the outside is what we're concerned with over the next couple of months. And it was huge. Uh, I'm told that this area was over 10 football pitches and it was nearly a mile to walk round it if you went round the circumference of it. And you can see that this is a natural meeting place. And often teachers would gather small crowds under the shaded porticos around the edges and teach them. Keep that picture in mind because that's exactly what happens in Jesus' last week as he goes to the temple, draws people, teaches them and debates with the religious leaders. But on this occasion, when Jesus arrives in these temple precincts, can you imagine this whole area being full of market stalls, money changers, animals everywhere? The whole area is full of market traders selling animals for sacrifices during the Passover. We'll get to that in a second. But the first thing I want to underline here is that Jesus is making clear here both, both 
in, in the way he arrives in Jerusalem and what he does next here, he's making clear that he is in charge. Sometimes we see someone do something that we don't like, don't we? And we mutter, who does he think he is? Walking around as if he owns the place. <clears throat> Actually, the way Jesus behaves here is emphasizing that he literally does own the place. Jesus is not coming to this temple on this day as a random citizen. He isn't coming with suggestions. He isn't coming as one voice among lots of possible voices. With divine authority, as the Son of God in human flesh, he comes right into his own domain, which they wrongly think is their domain, and you can sense the holy fire in his eyes. You can see him turning tables over. You can hear him shouting over this noisy market scene. How dare you? Get this stuff out of my father's house. And I think one of the most striking things about this scene is that not one person protests. It is as if they all actually know deep down that what they're doing is not right. Jesus, as king, is the one in charge. The irony, though, here, is that they thought that the Messiah would come and take their side and judge their enemies. But he begins when he comes by taking careful aim at the blatant corruption at home. And his first act is not to fight the nasty Romans outside, but to disrupt their pointless worship inside. Now, I... Um, I'm excited to show you that the way Jesus shows that he's in charge is by doing two things at the same time. This has stirred my own heart. And, he, and he, here it is, it's simple. Jesus comes here to this temple both warning and promising at the same time. And he does it in a way that only God could do which serves to underline who he really is. So we're going we're gonna to look at these two sides of that coin. Jesus warns, first of all, this broken religious system. And then after we've done that, we'll have a look at the promise. Now, there's lots of debate here about what Jesus is angry about. Some writers have suggested that it's the commercialization of, of the temple. And I, I think there's some truth in that. Um, but we need to pause and remember that thousands of pilgrims here are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And not, none of these travelers, they, they can hardly bring animals from home and walk 100 miles and bring them to Jerusalem. So the selling of animals 
was, was not necessarily wrong. And the other thing, the money changers too, who were also there, were necessary because people were coming from all over the place with all kinds of different coinage. But when they got to the temple, they, they had to pay in a certain currency. So, so the stalls and the money changers were not necessarily like wrong in themselves. So other writers have argued that Jesus is angry here about exploitation. Um, the poor are being ripped off with high prices and dodgy exchange rates and, the, and the, the market traders are sort of raking it in while the Passover is on. I, I think there's possibly some truth in that too. But I want you to notice here in verse 12 that Matthew says that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out the buyers and the sellers. Did you notice that? He's not just making a statement here that the sellers are the bad guys. He, he's driving the whole thing out. And I, I, I think it seems that the system itself as a whole is broken. There are some clues here in what Jesus goes on to say. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, two different places, actually. You might see them there's a footnote at the bottom of the page. First of all, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56 when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. That, that's God speaking in the Old Testament about his temple. And I think that's a beautiful way of saying that this temple would be a place where people would meet and encounter the living God authentically. What seems to have happened is that they'd become proud of the system rather than having hearts that loved God. It had become mechanical, if you like, rather than heartfelt and genuine. They were very religious, but according to Jesus, they'd forgotten what the point of their religion was. My house will be called a house of prayer. They looked like a temple. They looked like they were doing the right things. But it was all a busy, noisy, hollow kind of pretense. I, I wonder whether Jesus seems to have seen a kind of smugness in it too. Um, I wasn't sure in our translation if the word smugness would translate into Farsi. I don't know if it did or not. But um, complacency, um, it's into, I do love the description of it being a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting again there from Jeremiah, from a blazing sermon that Jeremiah preached, um, critiquing the temple in his day. It literally means bandit's cave. But when you stop and think about it, no crime goes on in a bandit's cave. The cave is where the criminals go after they've nicked stuff, isn't it? 
Their den is where they can hide and feel safe and go to relax and count their loot. And I, I think the sense of it here is that there are people here with this system who are thinking something like this. This is our temple. God's on our side. We can chill out and do what we like. Our sins are automatically going to be forgiven. It's, 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 a, it's like a bandit's cave. <laughs> They're going through the motions. They feel secure. And Jesus comes to critique. I, I wonder whether something of this hints at power too. The whole system, I think, had become by this point very political. The religious leaders had become very wealthy and privileged. And I think for the people too, there was a kind of nationalistic pride. Uh, we are God's true people, not those nasty, horrible Romans. And this was the center where all of that kind of nationalism was cultivated. And I wonder whether that in turn leads to a kind of prejudice. God had said to his people in the Old Testament, they knew this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, God was warning that your mechanical religious observance is pointless and worthless if, number one, your heart is not in it, and if, number two, it doesn't make you kind. But the problem is, once you start feeling proud of the system and your part in it, you start to look down, don't you, on the, the unclean ones outside of the system. And so this temple that was meant to be a place of authentic communion with God had become a place of pretense and of power and of prejudice. It had become more about money and national pride than the worship of God or any kind of love for others. The system had, had become more important than God himself. And their leaders were more interested in protecting themselves and the system than loving people under their care and leading them to worship God. Jesus was angry because it looked like a temple, but it was a million miles away from what God had intended it to be. The other side of the coin, though, is that Jesus promises something far better. Praise God. And we mustn't miss the significance of what Matthew says next in verse 14. I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. Right into this scene, this noisy, broken scene, come some unclean outsiders. Matthew says, the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple, at this temple. And what did he do? Immediately, he healed them. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, a rather depressed John the Baptist, who was in prison, 
sends some friends to ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah. I think he's a bit fed up and started to doubt. <laughs> and, and he sends some friends to Jesus and Jesus very graciously sends those friends back to John telling them, report back what you see. And what did they see? The blind seeing, the lame being healed and able to walk. In other words, Jesus sends them back and says, these miracles that you've seen are authenticating that the Messiah has come to put what is broken back together again. The religious leaders here thought that the unclean were contagious and they would catch it. And the unclean ones would make them unclean. But Jesus, I, I love this. Jesus isn't afraid of the vulnerable ones. It actually seems to work the other way around. Rather than Jesus catching what they've got and being defiled by those who are unclean, they catch his goodness. He's contagious, not them. And as he had already been doing up north in Galilee, Jesus only makes things better. And isn't that such an appropriate ministry? In the temple of God, in the city of God, here in Jerusalem. The people who had been kept outside were now welcomed in. The scorned ones were healed. Jesus embraces the weak and the broken and the burdened and he renews and restores them. People could not encounter God in this temple anymore. But a new era was now beginning in which people would meet with God through Jesus, his son. I think it's almost as if Jesus is like the new and perfect temple where authentic worship, forgiveness, love, life are all found. The temple might be broken, but Jesus isn't. So I really want to underline this, that as Jesus comes to Jerusalem as Lord and King, he reveals his magnificent lordship by doing these two things at the same time. He's warning and he's promising. He is carefully and truthfully warning them that God is not pleased. They are sitting under God's judgment. They're in danger, like my old car, of being scrapped. And yet, at the exact same time, Jesus is also promising that he himself has come to divert the threat of judgment and comes to hold out the hope of something far better. The pinnacle of all of this will be the cross. A week from now, in, in the text, two months from now, when we get to Easter in our sermon series, this whole sacrificial system was both a warning and a promise. This whole system from the Old Testament was designed by God to teach his people that he is holy and perfect and righteous 
and that their sin was therefore very serious and that for them as humans to be forgiven a substitute would have to take their place and absorb the judgment that was hanging over them and take it away so that they could be free it was a warning and yet also a promise because actually this whole system was pointing to Jesus from the very beginning. Animals being sacrificed day after day, year after year, could never atone for human sin. We sang about it today. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this whole system was a picture to show them the promise that Jesus himself would come and he would be the sacrifice. He would be the substitute. And that God's righteous judgment would fall on his innocent shoulders so that the guilty could go free. There would then be no need for animals to be sacrificed. And you have to wonder, I think, whether as Jesus is kicking over tables and driving the traders out, part of what he's saying is, not only is it broken, but it's not necessary anymore. Now that I'm here. <laughs> so Jesus comes both to warn. He comes to warn us, all of us, of the danger that we're in before God because we too haven't been what we ought to have been and yet at the same time to bring the promise of forgiveness and healing that is only possible through his death and resurrection I want to say to you do not ever forget this in the Christian gospel, you will always find this wonderful combination of serious warning and tremendous promise. And it all centers in Jesus. Now, before we look at the tree in a minute, it wasn't really a tree. Well, it was, no, it was a tree. Of course it was a tree. But it didn't behave like a tree. Before we get to that, let's just see what the response of the establishment actually was. And we'll find that in verse 15 and 16. And it underlines powerfully that Matthew's intention here is to underline who Jesus really is. So it seems that children, and I, I, possibly even like children who are messing about... <laughs> just being children they, they they essentially were repeating what they'd heard the adults singing hosanna to the son of david and they're chasing around the temple precinct repeating the same song that they'd heard the crowds and matthew tells us in verse 15 that the religious leaders saw the wonderful things that jesus did but it was actually the children singing that made them furious it was bad enough seeing crowds of unruly pilgrims from Galilee 
cheering Jesus into the city on a donkey. Then Jesus comes to the temple and starts kicking tables over and disrupting both their worship and their income. Now he even has the cheek to heal people and then gets sung about by children who knew no better. Isn't it ironic that these leaders had nothing to say to all the market traders defiling the temple courts and yet they're quick to pick on the weakest targets they can find in a nanosecond. Instead of drawing the right conclusion about who Jesus is, they come to Jesus and said, have you heard what these kids are singing? <laughs> have you heard what these kids are singing? Hosanna to the son of David. That's blasphemy. And the implication is, Jesus, you should tell them all to shut up. And in this moment, rather than rebuking the children, Jesus uses the Bible to silence them. They say, have you not heard? And Jesus says, have you not read? <laughs> have you not read in Psalm 8, where it says that God has ordained praise from the lips of children and infants. I wish we had more time to look at Psalm 8, because there's some sweet things here. But I, I want you to notice that Psalm 8 is talking about God receiving praise from children. And Jesus here quotes that at them, attributing that to himself. It's an indirect claim to him. He, he's claiming to be God. But Jesus here is also subtly saying, if the kids know who I am, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Even in their simple, playful innocence, they've arrived at the truth quicker than you guys who were meant to know the Bible back to front. Jesus shows that he is the Lord by warning that this temple system is thoroughly broken and by promising that he himself is greater than the temple. The kids get it, but the religious establishment are furious. And it's interesting, isn't it, in verse 17, Matthew almost makes it sound like Jesus just turns around and leaves them standing there <laughs> with their jaws on the floor. Well, let's turn to the tree. A private parable that inspires the disciples. Whew, this is truly a strange uh, part of the Bible, isn't it? What, on the face of things, doesn't it just seem sort of character for Jesus? To randomly curse a tree to destroy it. Generally speaking, in the Gospels, the miracles of Jesus are positive ones for other people. Done in kindness... And here, it seems on the surface that he does this one simply because he's annoyed. And, it, and it's a random kind of little display of temper almost. But the fact that it comes straight after what has happened in the temple is not an accident. 
And I think the way to understand this is that Jesus uses an ordinary situation, like he often does, and takes the opportunity privately to teach his disciples something about the warning he's just given in the temple. One writer describes this passage very helpfully like an exclamation mark after what's just happened in the temple. It's like, bosh, oops. Now, yesterday there were crowds cheering. On this day, it's just the disciples. It's an early start. Matthew tells us that. Maybe they skipped breakfast. And it appears that they are hungry as they head back into Jerusalem. So I, I learned some stuff here with this. Here, here's the key to it. It was, it was actually too early in the season for figs. But apparently the way fig trees work is that the fruit grows first and then the leaves grow. So in this case, as they're walking on the road, Jesus sees, hungry as he is, in the distance at the side of the road, a tree full of leaves. And even though it's early in the season, he thinks, if there are leaves there, there must be figs there. It's like an advert. Looks promising. The leaves are advertising the fact that there is unseasonable fruit present. But the advert was false. Like my old car that looked like a car but didn't behave like a car. This tree looked like a fruitful tree but on closer inspection there was nothing there. The key thing is that the tree, one writer says this, the tree made a show of life that promised fruit yet was bearing none. So, I think this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. This is, first of all, a warning of judgment to come. This tree has become a picture of the temple in Jerusalem. The day before, Jesus had gone there, in a sense, and saw that although it had the appearance of a fruitful tree, it was actually barren. It, too, promised much and delivered nothing and the fact that Jesus now says to the tree in front of the disciples may you never bear fruit again that's the warning the tree immediately withers and Jesus is pointing out privately to his disciples that it's over for Jerusalem she has not been what she should have been and soon God will come in judgment and sweep her away. And we're going to see this theme crop up more and more over the coming weeks. This is the big debate in the last week of Jesus' life. Jerusalem is facing God's anger and judgment. Jesus takes no pleasure in this. In fact, when we get to the end of chapter 23, we'll see Jesus weeping over the city's stubborn refusal to embrace either his warnings or his promises. And some of you will know the history of this. In AD 70, the temple and the city actually was completely destroyed by the Romans. And the whole sacrificial system came 
to an abrupt end. The tree is a picture of something that promised much, did not deliver, and ended up being scrapped. But there's a final twist in this passage. For some reason, who knows why, the disciples don't ask Jesus to explain why he did this to the tree. I think Jesus is trying to teach them. And Matthew ends up leaving the connection between the temple and the tree as an implied thing, partly because the disciples are shocked about the speed with which the tree withered. So they they miss the explanation. But Jesus, ever adaptable in the moment, follows their lead and uses their question that's a slightly tangential question to teach them something completely different. So I've called this the promise of faith that achieves the impossible. Now again, I think this is very strange language to our ears. Jesus basically says that they will not only be able to do what he just did to the fig tree, but they'll also be able to throw mountains into the sea. And the emphasis is on them having faith. Jesus underlines it strongly in verse 21. Truly, I tell you, verily, I say unto you, in the old versions, if you have faith, and what? Do not doubt. Say, oh, Jesus, listen up, guys. This is important. Faith and not doubt is the key here. Now, I hope we realize, I hope we realize that Jesus is not saying, if you have faith, you'll be able to do all kinds of massive and pointless magic tricks to impress other people for no apparent reason. But... It does seem clear that Jesus is using exaggerated language to invite them somehow to join him in what he's just been doing. You will not only do what I just did to this fig tree, but you'll throw mountains into the sea. Jesus is using exaggerated language, but he's clearly saying, you're going to do what I just did. That doesn't mean that they're going to kiss fig trees from now on if they don't bear fruit. I've tried to show you what Jesus is doing here. What is Jesus doing here? He's demonstrating his lordship by warning and promising. And then Jesus draws them into that and says, I want you to do what I've been doing. I think Jesus is saying to his disciples here that their task, their great task will be to proclaim Christ and his lordship to a lost world and to do that by warning of a judgment to come while at the same time promising that in Christ that judgment is averted because of his death and resurrection. And friends, our great task is to warn people My great task is to warn you of judgment to come and to hold out the hope of salvation 
that is found in Jesus. Now, I don't think that'll make the church popular. And it sounds like a totally impossible task. But Jesus here, on the fly, as it were, is aging them not to trust in themselves, but to believe in a big God and not to doubt him. One writer comments, in human strength, very little can be done. But when the disciple trusts God wholeheartedly and without doubting, then great things are possible. There is no record of any disciple ever moving a literal physical mountain. For that matter, Jesus himself is not said ever to have done such a pointless thing. But throughout the history of the Christian church, mountainous difficulties have often been removed when people have prayed and acted in faith. The last verse is not promising them anything they want. Jesus is reminding them that the infinite power of God will enable them as a group to fulfill their calling to live fruitful lives in a broken world. What do you make of this passage? It's, it's strange, isn't it? Jesus comes with divine authority both to warn and to promise. Hear his serious warning. For example, don't be content to merely look like a Christian and not actually really be one. It will not help you to look religious, but to miss the authentic heart of a relationship with God. You do not want to end up being swept away and scrapped like my old car or this temple or this tree. But hear his life-giving promise. Someone glorious and greater than any temple is now here. Hear his call to turn away from sin and self and hear his invitation to turn to him in faith, receiving his forgiveness and life and resurrection power. And for us as a church, let us hear Jesus' inspiring call that kind of lurks in this passage. And it's a call, isn't it, to wholehearted faith, boldness in prayer, as we seek to hold out the good news of King Jesus to those around us, faithfully warning and lovingly holding out the promise of hope in him. Let's bow, shall we? And uh, we'll pray. And uh, 
And then we're going to sing. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these amazing passages. And we pray that, as, we, as we've been singing and praying already, that you would show us Christ. Help us to see his majestic, royal, divine kingship, lordship. And we pray that you would help us to hear his truth and to hear his love. Help us to hear well his warning and help us to respond to his promise. We pray that you would enable us all to hear Jesus saying to us, even this afternoon, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and I will give you rest. We pray too that you would help us as a church, not to look like a church, but not be a church. Help us to be faithful, holding out your gospel to a lost world. Would you inspire us and help us and encourage us in that almost impossible task? We pray that you would help us to trust you and that you would move mountains as you build your church in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.